As the crack began to grow deep inside the hulking structure that enables navigation throughout the Pacific Northwest, no one saw it. The Columbia River is North America's second largest river, flowing more than 1,200 miles from the Rocky Mountains in British Columbia to the Pacific Ocean just west of Portland, Oregon. When combined with the Snake River, it moves $21 billion of cargo a year, including 40% of U.S. wheat exports. That system contains eight locks and dams, including the Dalles, located 192 miles from the Pacific Ocean along the Washington-Oregon state line. Built in 1957, it is one of the country's 10 largest hydropower dams. Its navigation lock lifts vessels an average of 88 feet and enables 10 million tons of river cargo a year. And yet, in September of 2009, the aging system was at risk of catastrophic failure that would have barricaded a major commercial route, disrupting supply chains and applying economic pressure to a nation just beginning to emerge from the Great Recession. Thankfully, a system of sensors developed by Erdic had been installed there two years earlier. As engineers examined the data produced by those sensors, they noticed large and unusual shifts. This prompted further investigation by a dive team, which discovered extensive cracking on the lower section of the gate. Authorities quickly initiated emergency repairs, preventing more significant damage that would have closed the lock for months or even years. After 13 days, operations continued as normal. Meanwhile, more extensive repairs were quickly scheduled and were completed the following year. Given the aging condition and economic importance of much of the nation's navigation infrastructure, asset managers need accurate and real-time information on the conditions of structures operating well beyond their expected design life. However, visual inspections are difficult and expensive, often requiring specialized infrastructure to allow removal of water around a submerged asset. The difficulty and expense for making this happen leads to very infrequent inspections and continued operation of critical infrastructure with limited information on its condition. This approach can lead to situations where relatively small, easily repaired flaws grow into massive damage that requires a complete shutdown for lengthy repairs, thereby snarling key navigation routes. Erdic is filling this void with a broad range of structural health monitoring capabilities. It has developed sensors that serve as virtual eyes and ears, providing constant real-time information on structural conditions. Combined with Erdic's predictive modeling tools, they enable proactive decision-making and better prioritization of limited maintenance funds. With each of its seven laboratories involved in the effort, Erdic's structural health monitoring capabilities have greatly evolved since first being employed at the Dallas Lock and Dam. Today's technologies incorporate data analytics and machine learning to flag potential hazards without the need for human monitoring and analysis. I'm Megan Holland, and with Chris Kiefer, this is The Power of Erdic. Our guests today are Dr. Brian Ike and Dr. Matt Smith. Brian is a research civil engineer at Erdic's Construction Engineering Research Laboratory and the technical lead and program manager for Erdic's Structural Health Monitoring Program. Matt is a technical director at Erdic's Geotechnical and Structures Laboratory and until recently oversaw Erdic's structural health monitoring efforts. We will talk with Brian and Matt about how Erdic is enabling more resilient, reliable, and sustainable infrastructure, saving lives, and keeping goods flowing on the nation's waterways. Hey, Brian, Matt, thank you all so much for joining us today. Brian, I want to start with you. Can you give us a basic overview of structural health monitoring and what it is and why it matters? Yeah, sure. So structural health monitoring, and um, I'll use the, uh, I guess, acronym SHM 
there's really like an official sort of um, statement on what SHM is. And that's really what we would say is that it's sort of the science of making condition assessments about the current and future ability of an asset or a system of assets to perform their intended functions using sensor and inspection data, numerical modeling, and statistical analysis. That's kind of a word wordful or a mm-hmm. mouthful rather, really taking sort of a, a high level overview of what that means. Basically what we're doing is with SHM, we wanna go from an observation to a decision. And the two parts of that really observations can be frequently when you think of SHM, those come from sensors, but really not necessarily from sensors. A person can be thought of as a sensor using inspection data, or it could be really like performance and um, use metrics. So how frequently is a structure being used? So what we're really doing is getting information on the condition of the structure. And we're using that uh, observation information to make a decision. And those decisions are generally in the form of a maintenance or an asset management sort of decision. They can be kind of component level, like somebody needs to go out there and tighten the bolt or grease a bearing, or they can be really structure level. So on the whole level of the structure, you need to close the structure down because Mm -hmm. uh, failure is imminent. um, Something catastrophic is about to happen, or it can even be sort of system level as high level as informing future designs or updating the design of a a system or or a structures, or it can be informing the the state or the condition of a collection of similarly designed structures. Asset managers and owners and operators of infrastructure need up-to-date information, really. And another aspect of this is utilizing or most efficiently utilizing limited funding and Mm -hmm. and really the need to prioritize future maintenance uh, needs. So if they get all this information, they can... um, ideally plan their future maintenance budgets appropriately to make repairs where they're critically needed. Matt, can you talk more about the monitoring effort at the Dow's Lock and Dam that we referenced at the top of the show? Tell us the story of what happened and how Arctic came to be involved with this. Yeah. So I'll probably get some of these dates wrong, but notionally what what occurred is sometime around 2008, uh, the Portland District engineers became aware of some performance problems on one of their uh, one of the lock gates at the Dow's Lock and Dam. And they hired uh, ITL's sensor group to go up there and, and install some some gauges when they had the lock dewatered to particularly monitor for specific damage in some specific areas that they were concerned about. And very shortly thereafter, after they put the lock back in service, they did a lot of data processing, looking at the data every day, looking for trends, and they noticed uh, some pretty significant changes. And it indicated that there was imminent failure of these, you know, huge lock gates holding back, you know, lots and lots of water, 50 feet of water mm-hmm. or, or so on a river that doesn't have redundant lock chambers. So if this lock gate goes out, you can't get goods and services up and down the Columbia River. And the commander there looked at all the data that talked to the lock operators, talked to the engineers, and they collectively made a decision to take this lock out of service early. Now, it was already scheduled for a lock gate replacement, but they weren't ready to take it out yet. So it was a very costly decision, very you know high criticality. You know, we're going to shut the river down, basically, yeah. uh, based on some sensor data. Now, it wasn't just based on sensor data. But that, that was really viewed as a success story because they, when they took the lock out of service, they, they certainly took all the water out of it. They went down and looked, and there was huge cracks in the bottom, wow. right? So those sensors had picked that up. And it was, a, it was viewed as a big success story on what could, sensors could be used for to help prevent problems or identify things, you know, particularly where you can't see them, under the water areas that are inaccessible, things of that sort. 
after that, uh, they, they've, they've since replaced that lock gate. Okay, uh, yeah, sure. Um, and the new gate that they put on, they also hired, uh, had ITL come in and put a, a sensing suite on that. And right it's still working today. We're still collecting data off of that. But that, that success story kind of elevated the sensing idea to the civil works directorate. So the operations and maintenance folks really started looking at that and saying, hey, you know, we really need to get sensors everywhere. Yeah. Right? And so I, I believe we have six or seven uh, locks now that are instrumented heavily under the smart gate system. They're collecting data of different sorts. And that kind of served as the baseline for the existing structural health monitoring program that we have. However, we've kind of used that as a springboard to go after other things. And so if we pick apart what made that original, the Dow's uh, example successful, wasn't that there were sensors. It was that there was someone who at the district who was knowledgeable about what they wanted to know mm-hmm. and a decision that needed to be made. And therefore they decided to gather information that would help them make that decision. So it'd be much harder for them to know whether to take the lock out of service if they didn't have the sensors. Yeah, sure. And so what's, what's uh, really key to that is the whole process of putting the sensors on in specific locations and someone looking at it and knowing what they were looking for in order to help make a decision kind of encapsulates what we try to do now under our research programs of structural health monitoring. Okay. We want specific things to be targeted to help folks make decisions. And if there's a sensor that can help identify some information for that, then we consider putting the sensor on. We try to bring forth uh, AI, ML type techniques, data science, big data analytics where we can to replicate what that engineer in the district had done, right? He was using his own, own human pattern recognition every day. I'm looking at data. I'm pulling it. I'm looking at it. Oh, today mm-hmm. looks different than yesterday. All right. Well, most of our district engineers and, and asset owners across the nation anyway don't have the time to pull data and they don't have necessarily the expertise to do that pattern recognition, particularly when our data gets complicated. So we, we want to bring advanced computing techniques and data analytics and data science to bear to pick out those trends where things are changing or they're having anomalous behavior or the data looks like there might be some damage. And then a human can go, oh, I need to pay attention to that. AIML, for those who don't know, that's artificial intelligence and machine learning. That's right. And that's definitely a, an up-and-coming area for this type of work. Yes. Can I interlude as well that Matt threw out um, SmartGate, and that's uh, an acronym for Structural Monitoring and Analysis in Real-Time of Lock Gates. And the cool thing, Matt, and we're going to talk more about how structural health monitoring at ERDIC covers really all seven labs. So you came in in the IT lab uh, working with structural health monitoring. You were at CHL too, correct? Yes. Um, and now you're at GSL. And, that, that's yes. right. Yeah. So I, I'm working on my, uh, my third laboratory. But involved with aspects of structural health monitoring at all three. Yeah, to a different degree. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I moved from uh, being a, a researcher leading particular projects to then being more of a program manager and developing new work at the, at the Coastal Hydraulics Lab and now as an infrastructure technical director at GSL and kind of paving the way for new business and trying to figure out how these types of things um, are beneficial for many customers. Brian, you've been really involved in vision-based monitoring. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so that's kind of, um, at least recently, uh, a hot topic in structural health monitoring. So vision-based monitoring, when we say that, we're really talking about kind of camera-based monitoring. And what it kind of is really focusing on is mitigating the need for contact-based sensors 
uh, and removing that need to physically contact the structure. And when I say contact-based sensors, generally the sensors you would install on a structure have to be physically attached to the structure. So some common sensors you might use would be like an accelerometer, for instance, that needs to be applied to the structure either by magnets or glue or some other form or, you know, strain gauges need to be welded on or or something of that sort. And what we try to do with uh, vision-based monitoring is to, from a distance, measure that same information that you can get from, say, a strain gauge or an accelerometer. And it's really come into fruition recently because everybody has really high-quality cameras now, and they're really uh, inexpensive. So even in your pocket, the camera on your smartphone is, you know, 60 frames per second video, you know, HD video, and very easy to set up. So you just set up a, a tripod, for instance, near the structure you're interested in monitoring, and you can acquire the data that would otherwise be nearly impossible to acquire just because of access issues to some of the infrastructure we deal with. So if you wanted to go out on some of these lock gates, like the one at the Dells there, and put accelerometers and strain gauges all over it, it would be a massive investment of time and, and money and, and manpower. And a lot of that uh, similar information can, can be acquired by just recording a video of the, of the structure in operation. And now you've got these frames in the video where every pixel in the individual frames of the video can work as a sensor. And you have this very dense information on the structure that can really be informative of how the structure is behaving. And it's really inexpensive to acquire. So Arctic's work on structural health monitoring is really broad. Can each of you highlight a few of the projects that we have going on out here, some of the things we're doing to um, help solve this problem? Yeah, our, our uh, research program that we've developed since from back when we had just started with SmartGate has become quite broad. As Brian mentioned, our definition kind of covers the different aspects where we're, we're making an observation. So we're either putting sensors on or we're equipping an inspector with uh, possibly some testing equipment that they could use. Or we might even be using some sort of a robot to carry some sort of a sensor or a piece of equipment to a structure uh, to keep humans out of harm's way. Mm -hmm. um, we also are focused on what to do with the data when you get it in. A lot of the sensors or even the testing equipment produce, you know, squiggly lines. Mm -hmm. And if you're a, a high-level decision maker trying to figure out where money goes across a national portfolio, squiggly lines aren't going to help no. you very much. We spend uh, some of our effort trying to understand how to turn those squiggly lines into meaningful engineering information and then engineering information into uh, things that are useful for decision makers. It might be a go-no-go a -go signal. It might be a, an estimation of remaining life or some sort of a measurement of uh, likelihood of continuing to perform. It might be in the language of, say, we have in Waterburn Commerce, so it might be in the language of how often a river might get shut down for mm -hmm. commerce, or it might be in the language of you know, some sort of a life safety risk. Uh, just really depends on the decision that's being made and the vocabulary that they need. But our uh, our projects kind of touch on those three different areas, the sensors, the models, and then the, the statistics and risk pieces. We've got projects that are developing new sensors. We have several partners. One's been looking at creating uh, scour sensors for use around bridge piers or walls uh, during a flood to try to figure out where, where material is being removed mm -hmm. and undermining a structure. Um, we have others, like Brian had mentioned, that are working on uh, you know, really highly leveraging high-speed video or high-definition cameras to reduce cost and increase the type of information we can get. We have folks who are looking at the economics of structural health monitoring. 
uh, you know, if you've only got so much money to repair things, how would you know when you should take some of that money and spend it on a sensing system? Sure. Because right? at first, at first blush, it's almost like, well, I don't have enough money to fix what I've got, and now you well, think I, I should yeah. buy a sensor. So, but there's economics behind that. The the field of decision analysis really helps to drive uh, some of those things. Systems engineering approaches where we can say this is the the consequences of an of a bad thing that are going to happen, and how valuable is avoiding that bad thing mm-hmm. and comparing that to how likely it is that a sensor will help you avoid that bad thing. Really, it, it helps it be put into perspective. And so an asset owner or asset manager can go, oh, yes, that is worth me investing in or not. And uh, some other things, we've, we've got uh, folks really looking at um, how to incorporate uncertainties into understanding the sensor data. So I've learned this about the sensor data. I believe this about my structure. Um, here's some engineering models uh, saying that it's this strong or it's going to last this long. How do I take all of these things together and understand that every piece of this information in every model has errors or uncertainty in it and, and then be able to still make a good decision even though um, you know, it's, it's not perfect information. And so we've got projects. So over the last uh, five years, we've had anywhere um, from 10 to 20 projects a year focused on different aspects of, of what I've just mentioned here, both internal with our ERDIC researchers and external with some of our academic partners. One of the projects that you were really involved with recently, I think, was the Digital Twin Project. Is that right? Ah, yes. Thank you. Um, So the Digital Twin is very interesting. Um, You can imagine that we have researchers who are developing a new sensor, or we have someone who develops uh, a technique that allows us to understand what a sensor means to, say, a dam or a bridge, something like that. But at the end of the day, we need, to, we need a platform to take all these things and to deliver them to our districts and divisions or other decision makers. They're not going to you know, go out and get a PhD in advanced numerical modeling sure. or statistics, and they don't know what the squiggle lines on the sensors mean. What we're trying to do under the Digital Twin Project is to create uh, an information technology platform. Uh, I believe it's going to eventually be cloud-based. Where as we develop these new sensors or new modeling techniques or new data science algorithms, we can plug those directly into one shared platform and deliver these capabilities to multiple types of projects, whether that be, say, a navigation lock along a river or a coastal port or uh, an inland dam uh, that's uh, water supply and flood control. And so a digital twin by nature is a numerical representation of a physical plant. So say, if you can imagine a dam, there's the real dam, that's the physical dam, and then there's its numerical twin that lives in computer land. So it's an, actually a digital copy. Yeah, it's yeah. a digital copy. And, and uh, what makes a digital twin different than, say, just a numerical model, right? Because lots of engineers build numerical models of things when they're designing or assessing. What makes a digital twin unique is it's co- they're connected. So there are sensors on the real physical structure that are feeding information to the numerical structure. And the numerical structure we can use as a test bed for things of what's going to happen a few years from now, or what happens if we get an overload situation, or Mm -hmm. we get a major flood on this thing. And the connection between the physical structure and the numerical allows that numerical to be as precise as we can get it. It's learning all the time what's really going on with this thing. Where are the errors? Where are the uncertainties? And so we can do a lot better of a job of predicting, uh, hopefully, what will happen um, if we take action or if we don't take action to the real structure by leveraging the digital twin. And Brian, I'm going to bounce it back to you. Um, do you want to talk about a couple of projects in this structural health area? Yeah, sure. I think, you know, Matt captured sort of the, the high level corporate approach to explaining what we do. Uh, so some of the specific things, you know, we, we leverage, um, you know, a lot of 
uh, the sensor sort of things that we target, well, you know, one of the primary things we look to investigate are what we would call like boundary condition degradation. So if you think of a structure, um, the structure has to be supported to the ground really somehow. So it's not, uh, you know, in a navigation sense, floating down the river or, or you know, the bridge isn't crumbling in, into the river below or whatever it may be. That support, we might consider the boundary condition. And so that's of critical concern to uh, the engineers and, and asset owners and managers. And so a lot of what we do will be to target, uh, say, the whatever that boundary condition might be, that support sort of condition uh, with sensors to determine what the condition of that may be, because degradation of that boundary condition may lead to further degradation of the internal structure in the form of cracking and, and things of that sort, because uh, forces are being distributed in, in funny ways if, if that support condition is starting to degrade. And so a lot of what we do is with targeting, for instance, strain gauges around there to monitor the way the force is being redistributed. We've done a lot with really uh, this vision-based approach to where, uh, in particular, there's one recent project where there is a, a noted problem on the gate, and we've deployed um, this vision-based approach to taking video and still images of the structure under load. Uh, and then we go back to something like a digital twin. We have numerical model that lives in this sort of virtual space that we've created in a software called Blender. And what it allows us to do is simulate the images that we would get from our in-the-field cameras. And then we can compare the displacements measured at the various pixels into a sort of model, what we would call a model updating scheme, to where we can determine which boundary conditions, which support conditions of the structure most accurately reproduce the data that we took from the field. And in that way, we can communicate to the, um, the owners on site that, hey, this is what the condition of, of your structure most likely is. This, this is what the, uh, the support conditions likely are, and this may be why you're getting these troubling problems uh, on, on your, your asset here. What makes Erdic a unique place to do this research? Erdic's fairly unique in that it provides an opportunity to tackle problems that aren't yet fielded. Uh, well, the solutions aren't yet fielded, I suppose. Right? A academia has uh, the charge of advancing science. Right? You're going to find in academia, they're, they're creating new data science uh, techniques. Right? They're advancing computational resources. They're in inventing new sensors. They're inventing new numerical modeling techniques. They're exploring math. And, and how it can all work together. But they don't own infrastructure, right? Right. And so it's sufficient for them to explore a topic, advance the science, make that available for everyone to use and, and, and push it forward. On the other hand, we've got the, the Corps of Engineers and, and other federal agencies and infrastructure owners who are doing their best to keep their infrastructure running. There's a big need across the nation for improvements in infrastructure, modernization, uh, you know, we've built a lot over the last century, and now the things are, are aging, and we're finding out, hey, we're going to have to repair this, we're going to have to replace that. So there's not a lot of time on that end to explore, like, well, maybe what could I do? You yeah. know, if I had all the money in the world, what would I build it this way? Would I build it that way? It's, it's very much, we're delivering a public benefit. What can we do today with the money that we have today to deliver this? And they do a great job. And so where Erdic gets to sit is this in this unique position between the two. We're part of the Corps of Engineers, so we're supposed to help them deliver the mission. But we're also academic, right? We also yeah. got a lot of scientists and researchers here who are aware of the cutting-edge technology. And so we can really get to bridge that gap. And so when we can work with our academic partners or those in technology companies on the outside, and we see that, hey, if I take this and that and that other thing and I put them together, 
I can deliver that to the field and solve a problem that they're dealing with and save them some money or make one of the things they're doing faster or make it safer and protect more people. That's really unique. The other thing that I think that's very unique about Erdic is the breadth of skill sets that we have. So there are some other laboratories around who have a lot of things, but you know, I, in our global address list, I can you know, search up somebody and within a few moments, I can be talking to a systems engineer or a chemist or a biologist or a mathematician or somebody who knows everything about computer science or high-performance computing. Yeah. And we can build just really interesting, robust, and diverse teams to solve some of those applied problems. And on this same topic, we mentioned that this effort involves all seven of Arctic's laboratories in some way, and I don't know that there are many efforts that can claim that. So how much cross-laboratory collaboration is taking place, and how has that impacted this research? It's impacted it a lot. As it was pointed out earlier, possibly in the podcast, This is I'm on my third laboratory, yeah. right? And so I've experienced the different labs and, and made a lot of contacts. But what I've learned is every one of the laboratories has uh, a unique mission to provide, but they also have a diverse set of folks within their laboratories. And so if we can look out while we're building programs across all the laboratories, we can find some really great people who you wouldn't expect to be in this place or that place and to build some good teams. It has varied as to which laboratories were involved in which, but over the last uh, few years, uh, we have done uh, work together with different teams across all seven labs. I think right now is probably the most diverse that we have. Our digital twin effort uh, that is under the health monitoring program, I think we have folks on it from all seven labs. If not, then we at least have another project that's grabbed up the the other laboratory that's not involved. So I I was uh, thinking about this, and I thought it would be kind of insightful to just off the top of my head list how some of the different labs are helping. Yeah. In our environmental lab, there's some risk and reliability experts. They've been kind of helping us understand, you know, how to quantify if bad things happen and when you might invest that value of the sensors, so to speak. ITL, uh, the Information Technology Lab, has sensors experts. Uh, We've got folks who are building robotic platforms. We've got uh, systems engineering experts who are helping kind of craft the the flow. And of course, the computer scientists that are building uh, those IT backbones. The Coastal and Hydraulics Lab, the Cold Regions uh, Lab, and the Geotechnical Structures Lab are all providing hydraulic or structural engineering expertise to bring those models to bear. We use those to kind of understand what the structures are doing and to interpret that sensor data in a meaningful way. The uh, Geospatial Research Lab is helping us understand point clouds and and how to visualize complex uh, three-dimensional data. And then the Construction Engineering Lab, where Brian uh, works out of, they're uh, they're really kind of taking our lead on some asset management-oriented activities. And then, of course, Brian is our, our technical lead for structural health monitoring. Matt, one of the things when we talked the other day that you brought up, uh, also when we talk about how Urtic is unique, is applying structural health monitoring, I guess, to more unique circumstances because every lock and dam is not going to be the same compared to maybe in the field of aircraft or something. There's The parts are a lot more similar. Yeah, that's one of the big technical challenges in that, you know, ro- rotating machinery, for instance, uh, uses a, a version of structural health monitoring called condition monitoring. Um, so helicopters or rotating motors and engines on an assembly line, things that there's lots and lots of. They're able to take advantage of the fact that there's many of this type of of asset and really learn kind of how they fail. And they have a lot of good insightful information that helps them know what to sense and when the thresholds are that they need to go take uh, preventative action. One of the challenges we have on the civil infrastructure side is, you know, take the Dow's, for instance. There's only one the Dow's dam. 
Yeah. Right. There's not two. There's only one. Uh, the way it's laid out, uh, the geology that's underneath it, how it was built, the materials that was built by, the people that designed it and built it, how many times it's been repaired, and what mm-hmm. what decade depends on what type of material it was used, and what maybe building codes were were used to design it, how it's run, its uh, environment, the weather that's assigned to it, how often it's used. So the the water chemistry, you know, so you can imagine it that there's lots and lots of these variables and and things that have changed over time that have resulted in each and every one of our pieces of large physical um, water resources infrastructure. The real trick is to take this generic concept and say, how is this applicable to that dam or that bridge? And so I, I think our team does a, does a pretty good job of that. Brian, can you talk a little bit about your collaboration with USACE districts and divisions and where these technologies are being used? Yeah, so I think, you know, Matt, touched on on the point that the Army Corps owns a lot of stuff. And I think that's from a specifically SHM perspective, that's that's really critical. So it's, it sort of makes, you know, USACE, the Army Corps, like Erdic's best customer, because all of the information we would need to develop an SHM system is internal. So Army Corps engineers designed the infrastructure uh, we're, we're monitoring. They maintain it. They own it. The only thing they didn't really do is physically construct it. Uh, you know, that's generally contracted out. But any of the information we would need on, you know, usage characteristics, typical problems, maintenance concerns, maintenance records, things of that sort, are all internal information. So it's very easy to access. Uh, similarly, getting on site and doing things, taking a look, seeing what the infrastructure is like. It's an internally owned um, structure. So I just go out there and, and go take a look at it. Nobody's going to question it. I go there, I show them my ID, and I, I go on site, and it's it's not that big of a deal. Matt kind of alluded to some of the the work that uh, academia does, and uh, certainly they don't have that luxury of just being able to to walk out onto a, a, a you know a lock and dam site, or even like you know the Golden Gate Bridge or something like that, which you know we don't do either. But right. if they were tasked with monitoring that, it would be significantly more challenging for them to get that information, like structural drawings, for instance, like blueprints and maintenance records and things of that sort. Whereas you know I just call the guy up in in Rock Island or St. Louis and say, hey, you know you got this information for me, and generally it gets turned around pretty quickly. Yeah. Where they're being used then is, so Matt kind of alluded to this smart gate system that we have, which is employed at uh, six lock and dam sites really throughout the nation. So we've got, um, I believe, three systems on the Ohio River scattered around. There's one on the Mississippi River, and then there's two on the Columbia River in, in the Pacific Northwest. So that, that's where we have long-term monitoring systems, collecting data, and you know we're making decisions and trying to communicate those decisions back to personnel on site. Similarly, you know, every now and then we'll get called with, you know, a pressing concern that somebody needs some information, sort of more of a, what we would call an NDT, so non-destructive testing platform, where we're using sort of SHM technology for a, a very short-term monitoring program to, to answer a pressing uh, matter immediately. So similarly, I said there was a problem at a particular lock site recently where we employed this vision-based monitoring platform to try to gather some information to inform the personnel on site you know, what the problem is with their infrastructure. So I mean, I guess really the short answer for where is this being employed is all over the nation. One of the, the critical concerns of this uh, administration we have right now in the White House that, you know, we want to modernize the nation's infrastructure. The biggest issues within the Army Corps is that we we don't build a lot of new stuff, really. We maintain and operate stuff that's been around for a long time. And so that's really the crux of SHM is, is uh, within the Army Corps is informing and, and I guess lengthening or prolonging the useful life of this nation's critical infrastructure. 
we've talked a lot about how structural health monitoring is being used within the Corps of Engineers. Are your technologies currently being used outside of USACE, or are there potential uses that you will kind of look to in the future? Well, certainly, I, I kind of alluded to the work we're starting to do with the military, part of this uh, installations of the future. So we're installing uh, SHM systems on um, Air Force hangars, particularly at uh, Tyndall Air Force Base, mm-hmm. where trying to tie this um, SHM system to provide information to the sort of central data repository in support of um, this Tyndall rebuild, where they're particularly interested in what they're calling developing the installation of the future there. Certainly, much of what we do can be um, applied to really any structure, um, even those that you wouldn't really necessarily immediately think of as a structure, such as um, the aerospace realm, where we're, we're monitoring aircraft. You know, that's not like a building that people live in, but the aircraft has a structure. We don't currently do that, but certainly we can employ that on military aircraft, helicopters, things of that sort. Currently, right now, we do have projects with the Air Force uh, to employ structural health monitoring um, of the structures at the Air Air Force. Who are some of the partners you guys are working with? Recently, we've had quite a number of of really good partners. We've had some longer-term partners, some short-term partners. And so some of the ones that we've worked with that have helped really kind of helped push the envelope forward, uh, the University of California at San Diego, University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, Marshall University, uh, and then there's a couple of private companies, Elintrix and HBMN Code. They've all had kind of a unique role to play throughout uh, the development of our program and then the sustainment of it, whether that be to kind of lead and guide some, some robust or broad academic research all the way down to helping us solve a specific, say, electronics problem or a numerical modeling problem. And Matt, last question. I'm going to direct this to you. What does the future hold? It really kind of depends on some of our administrative priorities, I would imagine. But largely, I could see us uh, starting to focus on answering some more broad national questions about resilience or possibly climate change. Some of the concerns are if the hazards change, right? Are we going to start expecting more uh, large storm events or more extreme temperatures or bigger waves and things of that sort? What What is that going to do to our existing infrastructure that that was designed under a set of assumptions, say, A, but now nature's treating it with B, mm-hmm. okay? And so the, the response to extreme events, I believe that health monitoring can really do what we, we talked about through the digital twin. You know, we can have this, this numerical model where we couple that with structural health monitoring to make sure, okay, we've, we've got this modeled as well as we can possibly do in the computer. Now let's simulate what happens under these other different scenarios. So I could see us uh, working a lot of that. But also there's, there's a push toward community resilience, right? So we've gone through this COVID situation where people are starting to ask about redundancy of society. So what happens if daycare is shut down? What happens if the port isn't open? What ha- how do I get my Christmas presents if there's nobody to work the docks? Yeah. You know, those kinds of things. And so where structural health monitoring can really play in is if a community or um, you know a, some sort of a social construct is encountering this disruption, how will the infrastructure condition that community relies on affect that? Is if it's in good shape, uh, you know, will it be able to bounce back more easily or weather you know that disruption? Or if it's in bad shape, does the fact that uh, there aren't enough workers or people can't go to, does everything just fall apart yeah. all of a sudden? And so being able to connect this idea of being able to talk about the current and future ability of our infrastructure to perform 
within a, a whole host of other contexts other than just, well, can this commodity go up and down the river, right? Or is this dam safe for this amount of flood? It, I believe that we're going to be asked to start connecting to more broad issues of storms and resilience and community planning and things of that sort. Within the Corps of Engineers, as was mentioned earlier, there's not an infinite amount of money, right, to fix all of the infrastructure that we have. And so we have to be really good stewards of that money and optimize to uh, repair things when they need to be repaired and to repair the most important things first. And so being able to understand our inventory and to do good portfolio optimization with our investments, we can rely on structural health monitoring techniques to start uh, looking at equipment. So right now within the, the Civil Works Director of the Corps of Engineers, we have these processes that inspect all of our assets and they come away with an operational condition assessment. So it's kind of like a grade. This thing is in a grade A, this thing is a grade B, a grade C. We have thousands and thousands and thousands of assets. So the rigor that is able to be applied to all of those assets is in sometimes appropriate, and sometimes we'd like to be able to spend a lot more time. So say if we've got a multi-million dollar asset here that has lots of life safety or navigation risk, we'd like to be able to spend lots of time on it, but we'd also like to have lots of money and lots of time to do things with. So our our headquarters uh, asset management program is looking at building into their maintenance management practices, using some of this condition monitoring or structural health monitoring to be able to more quantitatively and accurately say, Instead of, well, this is just condition C, more like this is uh, some measurement of its condition and how long it's going to last till we have to take action. And so that's really heartening to see that, uh, you know, some of the things we've built for, um, say, lock gates originally are are making their way into a a national enterprise-wide deployment, even though it's on something else, you know, a a pump or a motor or or other piece of equipment. But um, that's where I see it kind of going is, is uh, broad societal topics and then, uh, of course, uh, investment, uh, re- kind of repair investment optimization across our portfolio. Yeah. All right. Thanks for being with us today, guys. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks. Our pleasure. Within its Civil Works mission, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers faces an estimated $109 billion construction backlog, as well as unfunded maintenance activities. Meanwhile, navigation system downtimes for unanticipated maintenance and failures have doubled in the last decade. Erdic's innovative structural health monitoring technologies provide asset managers with critical information on whether a structure is operating as expected or whether it needs to be shut down and repaired. This enables the most efficient use of maintenance dollars and extends service lives. With economic returns on the R&D investment exceeding 20 to 1, this effort stretches Civil Works appropriations to provide the greatest economic benefit to the nation. The Power of Arctic podcast is a production of the U.S. Army Engineer Research and Development Center. Follow Arctic on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest information. You can listen to the Power of Arctic podcast in all major podcast players. Please subscribe and be sure to leave us a five-star review. Visit powerofarcticpodcast.org for more resources. You can also contact us at powerofarticpodcast at usace.army.mil. That's all we have time for today, but we'll see you next time.